Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now, grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. Amen. Well, Coastal Oaks, how are we doing this morning? Doing okay? Yeah? Doing all right? Yeah, we got some energy, got some enthusiasm. I like it. It is Super Bowl Sunday. Excited about that. I just finally hope that Tom Brady can catch a break in life, right? Like that something will go right for him for a change. I I feel so bad for that guy. Um, Man, really down on his luck. Sob story. Uh, But maybe today everything can turn around. You never know. That's the beauty of it. Well, welcome to Coastal Oaks. We're so glad that you are here. For those that are online, we are glad that you are joining us as well. So thankful for the team, the technology that makes that happen. Grateful for all of our volunteers that help to make things go smoothly on Sunday mornings at Coastal Oaks. Most of them are ones that serve in the background that you would never even know that they're here until something goes wrong, right? We never think about the sound guy until the microphone breaks. then we all think about the sound guy and look at him. But in this moment, everything's going great. And so we are grateful for that, grateful for the volunteers and children's ministry, just grateful for everyone who serves and is invested here in this community, this place here at Coastal Oaks. We are in the middle of a series on the miracle of the the church, the miracle that is the church. And if you remember a few weeks ago, we looked at Matthew chapter 16 where Jesus made a promise that it is amazing it even made it to us today because for an unknown rabbi to utter what he said, that he was going to build a group of people, that he was going to build an ecclesia, a community of believers that would endure throughout time, was not just bold or audacious, it was unthinkable, and yet here we are. The church endures across locations, across time, across technology, throughout pandemics, throughout any other challenge you could throw at the church, here we are. We are a part of that promise that Jesus made, and that is miraculous. It is incredible that we are here and we get to be a part of this great miracle that Jesus promised so long ago. Last week, we looked in Matthew chapter 17, and we, we noted how we are a part of God's family, that when we are a part of the, the body of believers, we are adopted into God's family. We are a part of the family, and because we're a part of the family, there's this great freedom that comes with being a part of the family, and yet so many times that freedom is expressed in putting other people ahead ahead of ourselves, in choosing to serve somebody else, not because I'm obligated or I have to, but because I get to. I am free to serve others, and that's what being a part of the family is about. Today, we're going to turn one more chapter in the book of Matthew and look in Matthew chapter 18, and we're going to talk about a topic that isn't always the one that maybe is the most fun or can sometimes, ooh, like it can already make us a little defensive, and that is the idea of 
forgiveness. We're going to think about forgiveness today. And so I'm going to ask, if you have your Bibles, if you're turned to Matthew chapter 18, we're going to read two verses together. And as we do that, I'm going to ask that we will stand as a body of believers for this time-honored tradition that has been a part of the church throughout history. We are going to stand in honor of reading of God's word. And in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 and 22, it says this, then Peter came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. This is the word of the Lord. You may have a seat this morning, church family. Forgiveness, oof, man, just even saying the word sometimes can already like make us, uh, you know, like I said, just defensive. Maybe part of that is we can so often think about the times where we have had to ask for forgiveness from somebody else. And I, I gave this public service announcement um, in the first service. Like, let's just go ahead and cut that off uh, at, at the pass, head that off at the pass. Like, next week is Valentine's Day. And so if you arrive at church not having gotten the card and chocolate and rose, it's too late. All right, you're already going to need forgiveness. HEB is not going to be able to bail you out at that moment if you haven't taken care of it this week. So, like, don't make that a reason you need to ask for forgiveness. Just get that done by like Tuesday. Set a note. You don't need forgiveness in that area. Just make it happen earlier in the week. But we probably could come up with a long list of times we've needed forgiveness in our lives or we've wronged somebody else. And so the thought of it, oh man, it can just bristle. Like it can just, oh, we don't love it because we can like feel shame for those moments. But forgiveness is one of those things that is a fundamental, a foundational part of what it means to be in God's family. To live in this body of believers, this church, this ecclesia. And forgiveness is not one of those things that is sort of a get around to it whenever I think about it act. You gotta imagine in this moment when Peter comes up and asks Jesus this question, Peter thinks he is saying something that is over the top. In the few chapters and, and verses that precede this moment, Jesus has talked about the church. He's predicted his own death. He's had these run-ins with Peter. Um, he's talked about what it means to be in the family. He's talked about conflict right before this. And so Peter, hearing all of that, decides that he is going to speak up and ask a question because that's Peter's MO. That's his personality type. He so often speaks for the group, and he so often gets it wrong. He so often misses the point. But in this moment, he thinks, I'm going to ask Jesus a question, and he is thinking, what I'm about to say is so big, so bold, that Jesus is probably going to say, not only is that above and beyond Peter, but I am amazed that you could even come up with that well done, my good and faithful servant. Peter thinks he has the secret to what Jesus has been teaching, and he asks him with all of the deference and humility that he can muster, Jesus, should I forgive somebody seven times? Seven times. That's unthinkable, right? I mean, most of us, if we're honest, we don't even want to forgive somebody once, let alone seven times. Peter asked this of Jesus, Lord, should I forgive somebody seven times? And he's waiting on the response that says, whoa, Peter, I hadn't even, I was just thinking like three, that, but, but wait, seven times, that's incredible. He's waiting for the praise. He's waiting for the affirmation that, Peter, you have gotten it right. 
But Jesus radically upends Peter's expectations. You see, Jesus says, no, 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 not seven times. How about 77 11 times more. How about a number that's so big you can't even comprehend it? Because forgiveness to Jesus is not some limited resource that we must dole out in small doses. No, it is a deep well that must be drawn from again and again and again. Because within God's family, within this body of believers, forgiveness is a fundamental part of our existence. The great Christian writer Henry Nouwen said that forgiveness is the cement of community. That if we want to live in community, if we want to be a part of each other's lives, forgiveness has to be a foundational part of how we live, which makes sense. Because when we live connected to one another, it's not surprising that there is sometimes going to be some friction and some sparks Right When we're serving together at church and we've got passionate ideas and, and, and we're, we're voicing them, it's not surprising that sometimes we might get on each other's nerves. That sometimes, maybe as we're trying to joke and, and you know, show some affection, we go a little too far and we hurt somebody's feelings. That maybe we forget to do something we promise to do. When we are a part of the family, it shouldn't surprise us that there are moments of friction. There are moments where we hurt one another's feelings. But what Jesus makes clear is that it should also come as no surprise when we choose to forgive instead of hold grudges. That forgiveness should be a regular part of our existence. Now the word forgiveness, when we hear it, sometimes you might think there are some things that we could substitute in place of forgiveness. Or that because we're thinking about forgiveness, it must mean the same thing as all of these other things. And we should make clear at the start of today that forgiveness is different than some other things that we might equate with forgiveness. For instance, forgiveness does not mean condoning actions. That when you forgive somebody else, you aren't saying, oh, it doesn't matter, or oh, that's no big deal, or oh, that's okay what you did. Forgiveness is not condoning another action. Forgiveness also doesn't remove consequences or the pursuit of justice. Sometimes when we forgive somebody else, that doesn't mean that there aren't going to be some consequences that that person will face. It doesn't mean that all of the, the actions that go along with a just society just fail to take place. That's not the same thing as forgiveness. Forgiveness is also not the same thing as reconciling because reconciliation takes two people and there are oftentimes a lot of other factors. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is our internal state of the heart. Forgiveness is our posture that we take towards somebody else. Reconciliation takes another party. And while we should pursue reconciliation, that's not the same thing as forgiving somebody else. Forgiveness also doesn't mean forgetting. We hear that and we think, oh, forgive and forget. Those go hand in hand. But truthfully, we don't get the choice to forget sometimes. If I ask you to forget something right now, that's gonna be the thing that's at the foremost of your mind. Forgetting is a hard process, and forgiveness can sometimes mean that we need to set up boundaries. That forgiveness, to truly forgive someone, might mean we need to actually set up some clear boundaries. No, Henry Nowen again says that forgiving does not mean forgetting. 
When we forgive a person, the memory of the wound might stay with us for a long time, even throughout our lives. Sometimes we carry the memory in our bodies as a visible sign, but forgiveness changes the way we remember. It converts the curse into a blessing. Forgiveness can heal our memories. Forgiveness is incredibly personal. It is between persons and therefore it is incredibly personal. And lastly, forgiveness is a process. We might want instantaneous. I'm just gonna snap my fingers and make forgiveness happen. I'm gonna snap my fingers and healing is going to take place. But sometimes it takes a long while. It is this process of consistent prayer, of consistently offering up our hearts and our feelings and our attitudes to to God for him to heal us. Forgiveness is a process. Peter asked this question of Jesus, thinking this is going to be so over the top, and Jesus comes back with an even more radical suggestion, and then Jesus tells them a parable, a story. And a parable is a story, but a story with a purpose. It's a story that is simple and easy to grasp, but it underscores this important truth, this deeper meaning. And so I want to read this parable to you, and I want you to imagine for a moment that you're among the disciples. You have heard Peter go up and ask his question, and you've heard Jesus's response, and you are probably a little shell-shocked, thinking, oh my goodness, 77 times. This, this incredible number. I, I can't even wrap my head around that. And Jesus, in your moment of disbelief, your state of shock, tells this story. And I want to read it to you and just hear it as fresh words today. This is what Jesus says. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him And forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father may do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Jesus tells a parable, a story about this is what the kingdom of heaven is like in response to Peter's question about forgiveness. Now the story has three primary characters. We have a king We've got servant one, and we've got servant two. A king, servant one, servant two. And the whole story gets started because a king decides to settle his accounts. 
The king decides to settle up, which is a, a normal process, right? Settling accounts. He's going to decide or, or figure out, look at his records and determine who owes me money. Who do I owe money? Who owes me money? He wants to look at his ledger. He wants to look at his books and figure out where do I stand? Where, what's the status of all of the accounts? My vendors, the expenses, what's going on? The king decides to settle accounts and he figures out who owes him He does this because the king is a good businessman, right? A king should keep books. A king should keep records. That's what good business people do is they keep a record of accounts. In my day job, what I do Monday through Friday, I'm the CFO at Stark College and Seminary. This is the world that I live in every single day. I oversee all of our finances. That means that every decision I make goes in the books. When we buy something, that goes in the books. When we receive some money, that goes in the books. Everything goes in the books. One of the first things I do each day when I get to work is I pull up our student database and I look to see where our students stand, who's made payment on their account, who still owes money on their account, who owes so much money that if they don't make payment, they're not going to be able to take classes here again. Like I have to figure out these things because we keep records because that's what good business people do. If you're the owner of a business, I'm sure you do the same thing. You keep accounts. And this king is a good businessman because he's got his records. He's got his accounts. He has his books. And he decides it's time to settle up. And what he finds is that there is a servant who owes him. Now, we're going to see in the story that both servants actually have a debt, but it's not to the same person. Servant one owes the king But servant two owes the first servant. And the amount of debt that they carry is a significant part of this story. But we don't always think about it because they use these otherworldly, outdated, like currency measures that we don't really know. I mean, we don't talk in terms of a denarius, a denarii, a talent. That doesn't mean anything to us. So here's what those represent. One denarius is worth about one day's worth of work. That's what a denarii is worth. It's worth about one day's worth of wages. And we see in the story that the, first, or the second servant owes 100 denarii. That means that he owes about 100 days' worth of work. So a denarius is one day's worth of work. Servant two owes about 100 days' worth of work. A talent meanwhile, is worth about 20 years of a day laborer's wages. It is worth 20 years of a day laborer's wages. And how much does that first servant owe? Well, it says right there, 10,000 talents. Okay, so 10,000 talents times 20. You're like, I didn't come to church to do math, all right? Like, that's not why I'm here, all right, nerd? I didn't, this is not for me. I'll solve it for you. Don't worry. I got, I got all of this, okay? The first servant owes about 200,000 years of wages, or if we uh, make that into days, 73 million days. That's the size of the debts we're talking about. 73 million days, 100 days. That's the debt that is in this story. One of those debts, obviously, is an unrepayable amount, cannot be repaid, which is why the king is going to sell off the servant and his family. 
Because this is what a king should do. This is what good business decides that you're going to do. If you're a good businessman, you've got to collect the debt somehow. And if you can't repay it, then this is what happens because the king is a good businessman. But in the middle of settling up accounts, what we see is that the servant decides to make an appeal or a plea to the king. And it says in verse 26 that he says, be patient with me. Now, patience, I use the word patience a lot of times, and usually I use it in moments like, I went to Whataburger the other night, and I ordered on my app, and then I pulled in, and I checked in, and it said it would be ready at 6.51, and it was 6.53, and I still didn't have my Whataburger, and I was like, oh, I've got to practice patience because I'm a follower of Jesus. Really significant, right? Like big. No, this use of patience is much grander than that. You see, what he's saying is literally, be big-hearted with me. Like, will your heart expand? Can you be long-suffering with me? Be patient with me. Be big-hearted with me. And the king's response there in verse 27 says that he had pity on him. That he is moved with compassion. And that word pity comes from the Greek word splonksna, which means are like intestines. It's not trying to be gross and said he like felt it in his stomach. Like not that as much as he was moved to compassion to his core, to his inward being. Like he felt pity inside of himself, in, in, like with, deep within him, in his core. This is not some flippant decision that the king makes to forgive him the debt. He feels pity or compassion deep in his being. And so he chooses to release him, to free him, to forgive the debt. But a few verses later, the second servant is going to make an appeal. He's going to make a plea. And what he says is, be patient with me. That sounds familiar. Be patient with me. How far back in scripture do we have to, oh wait, it was three verses ago when the first servant made the exact same appeal. This second servant makes the same appeal as the first servant, and yet the outcome is completely different because the servant has this one thrown in jail until he can make payment. And the story ends with word getting back to the king the king finds out what happened. He has forgiven this debt, 73 million days worth of wages, and he hears what this servant has done, and it says there in verse 34, and in his anger, he delivered him to the jailers. That word jailers can also be translated as torturers or tormentors. The king finds out, and he is furious, and he turns that servant over to the torturers, to the jailers, to the tormentors. Now, in this story, there's some questions that kind of simmer just below the surface. Like, why do we think the king cancels the debt in this story? Is this somehow like a, a good business practice? I mean, is there, is there some way that we could like, if we squint our eyes and really think about it creatively, we might be able to say, actually, this is a really shrewd move because this is going to help him later on and it's going to do this with liquidity and blah, blah. Like, is there any way we could make this a good business practice? 
Absolutely not, right? There's nothing good. Uh, This isn't good business at all. Um, I mean, do we think maybe it's because the servant has made some incredible appeal? Like he brought in a PowerPoint presentation and is like, let me just be patient. I've got like these things going on and I can explain all of this. I'm going to get a second job and a third job and all these things are going to happen. I mean, is this king somehow persuaded by the servant's appeal? I mean, remember what kind of debt we're talking about. First, like who can even rack up that kind of a debt? 73 million days worth of wages? What are we talking about? That is an incredible debt. And is the king somehow swayed because the servant says, have patience with me? If so, he's not really that thoughtful of a king, is he? He's kind of actually a dumb king if that somehow persuades him. No, we know that that's not true. We know the reason that the king forgives the debt, and it's because of mercy, like our choir just sang about. It's because of grace. That's why the king chooses to forgive this debt. But you have to wonder, why does the servant think that the king has canceled the debt? I mean, imagine being this servant and walking into the king's courtyard and then being called into the king's court and there's all of these officials there and they're calling for your head basically because you have to pay this amount that is unrepayable and you fall on your knees and in that moment the king decides, you know what, we're going to forgive this debt. That's not how you thought the story would end at all. Your life has been remarkably changed. You think that that would stick with him for a while, but what we find out in the story is that this servant is remarkably unchanged by everything that has happened. And, and no matter what he thinks, why he thinks he convinced the king, what we know is that he has a pretty low view of the king. He's grateful for what the king did for him, but he has no interest in being like the king. He's grateful for the king's mercy, but he doesn't want to adopt that posture. He doesn't want to practice that mercy in his life. He has a low view of the king. In the story, where does the debt go? I mean, what does the king have to do with his books to make this debt go away? The king, as we know, he's got a system. He keeps accounts. That's what good business people are supposed to do. That's how the world functions. But now he decides to get rid of the debt. What is the king supposed to do? I mean, he can't just work this into the old system. He can't just wipe this off. What is he supposed to do? The king has to introduce an entirely new system. You see, the king can't keep the books and forgive the debt. Things don't work that way. So if he's going to throw out the debt, he's going to have to also throw out the books. When he does that, he's essentially saying, I'm not in the good business business any longer. I'm not trying to be a good businessman. I'm going to throw out my books. Who bears the cost of the debt in this story? I mean, somebody always bears a cost. There's always some cost associated, and who is the one who absorbs it? Well, in the story, the king is the one who takes on the debt. The king is the one who takes on the cost. The king absorbs this cost on himself. And think about the story for just a moment. Jesus is telling the story of a king who forgives a debt He's telling the story of a king who pays a price. He's telling the story of a king who eliminates a system in order that a servant can have 
new life. That's what this story is about. Because the king decides, I'll take the cost on myself. For many of us, we we don't live in the world of forgiveness. In fact, we live in the world of revenge so many times. And really, revenge is saying, I'm not going to take the cost on this time. Revenge is when you hand the bill back to the other person and say, no, you're going to pay what you owe. I'm not going to bear the cost. Pay me what you owe me. That's revenge. But in this story, the king forgives the debt and takes the cost on himself. The last thing we find out in the story is that the king isn't the only one who keeps accounts. The king isn't the only one with books in this story. No, the servant goes out and finds somebody who owes him. The king has thrown out the books. The king has said, we're not going to live by that system anymore, but the servant still clings to his books, doesn't he? He's still in the debt collection system But the king at the end of the story says what? You know what? If you want to live that way, if you want to live by the books, if you want to live life only by the accounts, then you can keep your books until you pay everything back. He tells the servant, if you want to cling to your books, you can carry them with you all the way to the end. And in his anger, he throws them to the jailers. I want you to do something with me, if you don't mind. If you have anything in your hands, if you just empty them for a moment, I want you to put your hands out just kind of on your lap. Um, And I want you to imagine you're holding a book in each hand for just a second. You can kind of feel the weight of the books. In your left hand, this is going to be the book that represents your relationship with God. And in your right hand, this is going to be the book that represents your relationship with other people. I want to think first about our left hand. And you could kind of feel as though there's a book right there and it's open and there's a page on the left, a page on the right. On the left, imagine that's the positive column. And I want you to think, in your relationship with God, what are all of the positive things that you have done? What are all of the good actions that you've done? The moral activities every day that you've gotten up and done your quiet time, right? Every time that you have served somebody else. But don't just stop there. I want you to think about the things that you've done that nobody will ever know about or see. The times that you have helped somebody when their car was broken down. The times that you've given money to somebody when they need it. Go further, though. Like, keep thinking, what are all of the good things you've done? The movies you've walked out of, right? I mean, the time you've been at the grocery store and somebody was in the 15 items or less line and they had 20 items and you didn't say anything, right? Like, put that in the positive column. All of those good things that you have done in your life. But there's the right side, the right page. And that's the negative column. Think about all of the sins, all of the quiet disobedience, and not just the ones that were public, but the ones that nobody will ever find out about. See, when we started off, you probably thought your book was like this size, that's how I thought, but then when we get to that page, I'm like, oh no, my book is a lot bigger. I need more pages because I have to list so many things in the negative column. We can put that book just to the side for a second. I want you to think about the other book, your relationship with other people. And again, this book is open. There's two pages. There's the positive and there's the negative column. And in the positive column, list all of the people. Just kind of look at that page and think about writing down the names of all of the people who have done good things for you. 
the people who have approved of you, the people who have offered encouragement, the people who have helped you out in life, the people who have been there when you really needed them, the people that you have good relationships with, the people that when they text you, like your face lights up and you just smile, who are all of those people? List them in the positive column. But then the other page, right? Because there's the other page, the negative side. Who are all of the people who have wronged you? Who are all of the people who have done something to make your life more difficult? They have made fun of you. They haven't been there in those times that you needed them. They, they've gone out of their way, it seems like, to just make your life more challenging. List all of those people. And not just the people that like you personally know. I mean, list all of the people who are off in the distance that you read about in newspapers or see on TV. List every politician, every athlete who's gone against your team, every celebrity that you don't like. I mean, just list them all there. We want to get everything down because that's what the books require. We've got to keep accounts, right? And I want you to feel those books in your hands for a moment. And I want to ask you, how attractive is life by the books? How good does it feel to live this way, to constantly have to keep track of who's in the plus column, who's in the minus column, who's done right, who's done wrong? Where do I stand with God? Have I done enough good? Have I done more wrong? How attractive is that? Jesus actually gives a word for it there in verse 34. He says it's torture, it's torment. To live life that way is torture. But this is how we live our lives, isn't it? This is what we do so many times, is we keep track over and over who's done right for me, who's done wrong for me. We're grateful that God decided to throw out the one book, but we want to cling to this other book. We want to live life that way. And what we see in the story is that God will let us live that way, right? God will let it. If you want to live that way, then that's fine. This is where that path takes you. But friends, I don't want to live that way, and I don't think you do either. In order for us to live out the gospel, to live as God's people, to be a part of this miracle that is the church and be in God's family, we are going to have to do what God has done for us. And that is we're going to have to throw out the books. We're going to have to get rid of the ledger system. We're going to have to get rid of the pluses and minuses and instead practice forgiveness. Not one time, not seven times, but a mind-boggling amount of times. We need to dole it out at the same level that God has given us. So as we wrap up today, I want to pray with you. And I want to pause right where we're at, maybe just find kind of a, a sense of quiet, a sense where you're just, it's just you and God for a moment. And I would be the first one to acknowledge this topic is a challenge for me. Because I can think about all of the people who have done wrong in my life, the people who've been frustrating to me. And it feels satisfying to hold their debt, to say, you owe me. It's not easy to give that up. In fact, you might even say it feels a little like a part of you is dying on the inside. You're having to give up something that you've clinged to for so long. And I have to remember what Jesus did for me, that Jesus didn't just 
figuratively die for me. That Jesus didn't just metaphorically die for me. Jesus literally died for me. He bore the cost on his body. He died for us so that our debts might be forgiven. And if he can do that for me, I can do the same for everyone that I encounter. 